The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute. Welcome to Ethics on My Mind, a special bonus show from Examining Ethics. I'm Christian Weishart. And I'm Andy Cullison. Ethics on My Mind is a space for us to focus on timely ethics issues. Today, in response to the recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, we're going to re-release a segment from an earlier episode. The recent rallies in Charlottesville are just the latest manifestations of a growing white supremacist movement in the United States. It can be easy for well-meaning white people to try to distance themselves from the hateful actions of a small number of self-identified supremacists. But as we'll hear from the philosopher Alison Bailey and women's studies scholar Tamar Boberf, white oppression can take many forms. Stay with us as we discuss the problematic behavior known as white talk. Hi, Christian. Hi, Andy. So we're still technically on our summer break, but something happened a few weeks ago that we knew we had to respond to in some way. Like a lot of people, we were horrified by the recent Unite the Right rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia. On August 11th, a group of white supremacists marched on the campus of the University of Virginia. The following day, a larger group gathered to protest the removal of a Confederate statue in Emancipation Park. Both protests ended in violence, and both protests were very literal proclamations from a large group of whites of their own racial and ethnic superiority. Christian and I are both white, and like a lot of white people, we're horrified by what happened in Charlottesville, and we both strongly oppose white supremacy and all that white supremacists stand for. White supremacy isn't just carrying around a Confederate flag or calling yourself a neo-Nazi. There are subtler and perhaps more insidious forms that oppression can take. I think as a white person, it can be really easy to pat yourself on the back and say, well, at least I'm not one of those white people. I don't carry around a torch and shout that white people are better than everyone else. There's even a popular Twitter hashtag, not all of us, which many white folks have recently used as a way of publicly distancing themselves from white supremacists. But that hashtag in spite of its ostensibly good intentions, can be problematic. In fact, you could argue that it's actually contributing to oppression. It's symptomatic of a larger problem of whiteness, the tendency to make it all about us, us white people, in discussions about race. There's even a name for this tendency, white talk. Way back in the early days of the show, we spoke with the philosopher Alison Bailey. Together with the women's studies scholar Tamara Boberf, She talked us through what white talk is and how it can be a bad behavior. White talk is a problematic facet of white culture that contributes to oppression. Is it the same as brandishing a torch in the name of white supremacy? No. However, it's one of the multiple ways that whites can derail conversations about race. And whether you like it or not, the United States is going to be continuing a conversation about race for years to come. So here's my interview with Tamara Boberf and Allison Bailey from Episode 6, The Burden of Whiteness. If you want to hear the episode in its entirety, you can find it on our webpage, examiningethics.org, or you can look for it on Apple Podcasts. And we'd like to ask that you remember that this segment is from a really early show. Uh, We've learned a lot since then and hope that um, our somewhat amateurish recording isn't too distracting. So without further ado, we're going to play the segment for you. Along with the show's former producer and current independent producer, Sandra Burton, I took listeners through Andy's interview with Tamara and Allison. 
should explain to our listeners what white talk is. Okay, so there's this cluster of similar speech patterns performed by white people that get repeated over and over in conversations about race. And it's known in academia as white talk. And these speech patterns effectively shut down conversations about race. So Andy sat down with philosopher Allison Bailey, who writes about these speech patterns. We asked her to give us some examples of white talk. So it sounds like this. You can't prove that Eric Gardner was beaten because he was a black man. White people get harassed by cops all the time. You just don't hear about it because we don't complain. And yeah, I've heard that black lives matter, but really, you know, all lives matter, including cops' lives. Are you sure that the reason campus police stopped you and asked you if you were a student was because of your race? Could it be that they just didn't recognize you or that they made a mistake and thought you were someone else? I'm from a poor white family. We suffered too, and you don't hear us complaining. If you stick to your dreams and work hard, then anyone can make it. The problem is that people of color make everything about race. It's an excuse for everything. Oh, right, right. I understand the problem. I've read James Baldwin and Bell Hooks. I'm queer, so I know what it feels like to be oppressed. I don't think of myself as white. I'm Irish, Dutch, and German. Look, I'm a good person. I'm not prejudiced. My ancestors never owned slaves. Anyway, that was a really long time ago, and I'm not responsible for the Indian Removal Act, Japanese internment, or Jim Crow laws. I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, I know that America has a history of racism and genocide, but you really can't dwell on the tragedies of the past. Things are so much better now. We have a black president. And anyway, I'm not the problem. It's only bad whites, those racists that are the problem. I'm not like my bigoted father. The problem is that some people don't treat others equally. And just to be clear, I have friends that are Asian. My church does work in the Chicago barrios. It's not like I'm a member of the Arizona militia or something. Trust me, my heart's in the right place. I'm a good white person. There's no problem here. It was depressingly easy to find examples just like the ones Allison gives in the real world. My great-grandparents came here with absolutely nothing. And when they got off the boat, no one was there saying, hey, look, more white people. Well, let's help them. My parents weren't here 400 years ago. My family arrived here way after the Civil War. We had nothing to do with it. I think I have a multiracial family, and nobody cares about race. It's the last thing happening. I have Asian friends. I have friends of every different race. Half my friends are black. I could care less what race someone is. I've never, I was never taught to really notice it. The whole thing about Black Lives Matter started as a, as a, you know, as a rallying cry, and then they made more out of it. It's, it's just stupid. It's silly. All <laughs> lives matter. Every life matters. Now, white folks aren't getting the same opportunities. It's kind of almost reverse discrimination in that way. There actually are black people who have money, Anderson. I don't know why you continue <laughs> to make this a racial thing there. I am the least racist person that you have ever met. I am the least racist person. You know, no white person is immune from saying stuff like this. I'm guilty. But, but a skeptic might say, like, oh, great, you know, academics like Alison Bailey have identified this group of speech patterns. So what? Are these speech patterns a good thing? Are they a bad thing? Like, why are we talking about this? Well, whether or not we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, at the very least, it's unproductive. It, and, it, and furthermore, it looks like a suspiciously easy way for us as white people to avoid having difficult conversations about race. If it even seems like there's a phenomena that makes conversations about race difficult, then that phenomena is worthy of examination. When I spoke with Allison and Tamara, we got to talking about how white people use white talk to avoid certain kinds of conversations. Here's Allison explaining. 
So they find ways of detouring and distracting the question about deep questions about racial privilege in the United States and turning them into exercises in goodness or exercises in meritocracy. Oh, everybody's discriminated against. Oh, all black, all lives matter, not just black lives. So those those moves are harmful, right? They they erase the testimony of people of color, mm-hmm. and they're difficult to hear in classroom settings. Right, they can change the caliber of the conversation. I'd like to focus on not just you know what white people lose, but who's doing the emotional labor, and also just the um, how deep our resistance is to this. The fact that you shut down about something that someone is saying to you, this is important to me. This is important about my world, and I want you to hear it. And white people say, oh, I never owned slaves. My parents, you know, were Irish immigrants. That's harmful. That's terrible, right? Okay, so white talk shuts down conversations about race. White talk is a way of resisting a certain kind of knowledge. Couldn't we just say, well, okay, a lot of white people are doing this bad thing that's shutting down. Why can't people of color just continue the conversation without white people? Then it's just the white people's loss if they don't participate. I had a similar kind of thought, but then Allison set me straight on this. It's a problem when white people refuse to talk about race. Epistemically speaking, we're members of communities, so we create knowledge together. Wait, what does epistemic mean? Epistemic just means related to knowledge or justification or reasonable belief. Oh, okay, got it. Epistemically speaking, we're members of communities, so we create knowledge together. So imagine white folks doing white talk shutting down as part of that epistemic community. What does that do to that community? If we don't hear testimonies of people of color about everyday microaggressions, or if we dismiss them as, well, you made the decision to do this, or that's because you don't work hard enough. So because people learn together in communities, when white people perform white talk and shut down conversations about race, she's saying that it actually prevents knowledge about other races from entering into the white community bubble. And while Allison doesn't explicitly say this, I suspect she'd agree that Part of the problem here is that by removing themselves from these conversations, people engaging in white talk prevent certain things from becoming part of our shared knowledge base. Epistemic communities create a set of shared beliefs, what we would all agree it's safe to assume everyone else knows. If enough white people stay out of these conversations on race, they can basically prevent certain facts about racial injustice from ever being part of our shared knowledge base. So then isn't the answer just to, if you're a white person, kind of be more aware of, of white talk and stop doing it? That was, that was sort of my first thought. And, uh, but according to Allison, the short answer here is no. Here she is to explain. Cleaning up our, our discursive practices is not going to eliminate 500 years of deep structural racism. I don't want to silence white talk in the same way I would want to just cure a symptom, Mm -hmm. because I think it's a point of entry again. And so it's like, okay, what's this doing? Mm -hmm. And white folks, if you say, don't say that, that's bad, we'll be like, okay, I'm bad, forget it, it's too much work. So you don't want white folks to shut down, you want to say, that's you went there, why did you go there? Mm -hmm. And not to, huh, there's something deep and structural and power oriented that I need to think about. Mm -hmm. You went to... um, I have black friends or something like that. So it's like, wow, that's not the question I asked, but you answered it in this way that pulled the conversation onto um, an epistemic home turf where it's your home turf, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you get to play the game you want on that turf. So you can't just take out white talk and everything will be okay, according to Allison. 
Because white talk is sort of like a fever. It's a symptom. Just getting rid of the symptom isn't enough. So if you notice this bad thing like a fever and ask, how do we get the fever to go away? You're not zeroing in on the most important issue. Okay, so if white talk is just a symptom, what's the disease? Tamara Babaf joined us in this conversation as well. Here she explains the disease, according to her, that is creating symptoms like white talk. And I think it's, yeah, it's more than talk. And I think we can't lose sight that this is about power over people. So unequally positioned groups. And who gets to say it's getting too hot? And who gets to determine what's mm-hmm. a valuable conversation? Who gets to determine it's now and not mm-hmm. later? And so to me, this is always about power. So we have people who exert extraordinary control over the lives and the livelihoods of other people. And those are the people, so we have to examine their investment or they have to examine their investment in something that is not democratic, mm-hmm. you know, that wants to maintain its authority over other people to tell them what reality is. Okay, so we could say then that the disease that creates white talk is something like structural racism or structural systems of domination that leave some people in control over others. And I'd like to add, I don't think it's merely the existence of these structures. I think it's partially the discomfort that comes with recognizing that you're part of a system or you may be part of a system that harms other people and not yourself. And there's this deep need that people sometimes feel to avoid that morally uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. I've even heard someone who identifies as a white ally say, I was here to help you, but if you're going to yell at me, then I'm leaving. So I think it makes a lot of sense when Tamara says that it's all about power. Yeah. And and white people are the ones currently dominating American culture. So it makes sense that at least at this point, white people have a lot of control over the conversation about race, right? And, and in what tone that conversation happens. So then the next question, right, is why do white people do this? It's really hard for me to imagine that a white person, you know, is doing white talk to like, as a conscious like power move or like an ego thing. It seems like it's because white people are rewarded for doing it. When white people say, I'm not talking about this, they don't have to talk about it. They aren't forced to disrupt their worldview. White talk is just one, you know, bar in the cage of oppression, to borrow Marilyn Fry's metaphor, that helps keep white supremacy or white privilege in place. So it does this by distracting us from deep issues. It allows us to what W.E.B. Du Bois calls flutter, to, to just sort of dip down and, and touch racism in a way that recenters our goodness or makes us feel comfortable about talking about racism and doesn't make us feel like we're bad people. So white people constantly steer conversations back to um, meritocracy, to our own goodness, to uh, one-size-fits-all discrimination, and there's a whole host Mm -hmm. of lists of these patterns. Uh, So white talk is used to derail, redirect conversations, to dismiss counter-arguments, to Mm -hmm. silence, to interrupt, and to collude with other whites in creating a culture of goodness, which makes it really difficult for us to critique the white world. So we mentioned before the kind of shutting down that happens with white talk. White people are effectively closing themselves off from knowledge. But another thing that's happening as a result is that people of color aren't allowed to share their experience of the world. Yeah, so Alison Bailey calls this shutting down epistemic closure, uh, which she defined for us in our discussion. 
Yeah, epistemic closure is just a fancy word for I'm not going to go there. So you close down in order to protect your sense of goodness. And that's a huge and testimonial injustice. And I've watched this in the classroom. Students of color will say over and over and over again, things that are happening in the community, the surveillance that happens to them on campus, the, the policing in the community. And white folks are just like, are you sure? You know, there's this doubt. And so you haven't been heard. And then so can you, you can imagine what this does to bodies of color as they move through the world is you've got microaggressions and then you've got no uptake. So the, the correct response to that is, are you sure that was about race? No. The correct response is, are you okay? <laughs> right? Is this something that, that we need to have a conversation about in our community? Yeah, I, I think this epistemic closure, this shutting down, takes many forms. Sandra, when we first discussed white talk, you brought up another variation of epistemic closure. There's been something that I've been noticing recently at every conversation about race that I've taken part in. There's always one white person who points out that the problem in the community lies with the people who aren't there. And what they're really saying is that to show up to a conversation about race as a white person means that your job is done. You are the good white person, and the white people out there, those are the bad white people. And I just want to go to one conversation in which the white people present are willing to talk about the things that they do wrong and what they can do to be better, instead of deflecting blame and listing their anti-racism resumes. These conversations should be moments of deep self-reflection that motivate us to treat those around us better. The reality is that we all hold prejudices. We were socialized this way. And white people would do well to admit our shortcomings in order to progress. And that's a great example of just how insidious white talk and epistemic closure can be. Um, so I've been that white person who's like, where are the other white people? Um, and it never occurred to me that I was, by doing that, creating epistemic closure until you pointed it out. Um, and, and so there are other equally as subtle forms of shutting down that take place. White talk has a somatic or a bodily component to it. Uh, you watch white folks, you know, get tense uh, in the presence of people of color talking about race. And so what does that do to bodies of color? The failure to want that knowledge and shut down is harmful because you're saying it's not worth me knowing these things. And I know that when I shut down, I hurt you and I'm still willing to take that position. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that, oh, goody, white people get knowledge and we can walk away. It's no, the fact that we don't have that knowledge, that's the problem that we shut down and we don't see harm. We don't see pain. We don't see injustice. And that is big. Allison and Tamara discussed examples of when you can actually see epistemic closure happening. So when you mentioned, Allison, body language, you can see that. And you had a couple images mm -hmm. in your talk yesterday. Mm -hmm. With, and, and it happened to be two white students, and you can see, like, one woman has her, I don't know if her hands were crossed across her. across her chest, her heart, yeah. right? She's protecting yeah. her heart. And, and I'm not going to engage. This is my shield, and I don't have to. You know, I can mm -hmm. stay here and be a testament to my right not to engage a reality. And then the, the white man, his body language was not loving at all. You know, it was questioning, it was skeptical, mm -hmm. it was sort of like, this doesn't make sense to me, therefore it has no sense. So if the answer is not just stop performing white talk, stop closing off certain kinds of knowledge, what are white people supposed to do about this? In some of Allison's other work, she makes a very important point about solutions to this problem. She basically says that getting rid of white talk is a misguided way to think about the whole problem. She argues that you can't just make a quick fix in this situation. But she does have some positive views about 
how white people might begin to change the way they talk about race. I asked her about this in our conversation. Okay, so there's this phenomenon of white talk. What do I do? What do I say? How do I how do I conduct myself? Mm -hmm. And um, do either of you have some thoughts about what people should be thinking when they're going into these kinds of dialogues? Hmm. Okay. Are there any? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, nothing that's gonna. <laughs> It's immediately going to be like a quick fix. Of course. So one, if the problem and the harm of white talk come from white defensiveness mm -hmm. and refusal to know things about the world and understand their their perpetuation of harms, um, then that's a very protective identity. Mm -hmm. So one thing I think that white folks need to get good at is taking risks. And I can remember being in school and just saying, I just need to get through this conversation on race with like no one seeing me mm -hmm. and not taking risk and not being vulnerable. And what I've come to learn is that you, by making those mistakes, because you're going to make them, you just can't try to be perfect on this. So making mistakes and stopping and saying, having someone call you out, maybe another white person, hopefully, right, who says, no, you know, we don't do that. Um, and learning from those mistakes, I find I can do a lot of work by just being sort of present, listening and being open hearted to what folks have to say mm -hmm. and navigating that in really kind ways. And when things get messy going, we just need to let this settle and circle back because mm -hmm. there's an incubation period for these conversations. So the takeaway here is that we should own up to our mistakes and be willing to make mistakes in the first place. Be vulnerable to screwing up. But most importantly, be willing to apologize when you do mess up. Yeah, it's helpful to think about how you would treat somebody that you love. You know, if your best friend says you hurt her, your first response should be to reflect and apologize. The loving way to respond isn't to immediately get defensive and start coming up with excuses. Yeah, it doesn't matter in that moment if she's right or wrong. It's not the issue. When someone you love is hurting, you just listen. It's what Tamara calls the difference between an arrogant and a loving approach to the world. She introduced us to the work of Maria Lugones, who wrote about having an arrogant perception of self and a loving perception of the world. Tamara elaborated on the notions of arrogance and loving. So when you're arrogant, you stand apart. When you're arrogant, you judge. When you're arrogant, you presume rightness mm -hmm. in what you're doing. And you, you shut things out and you put a lid on things that you don't like. I mean, you are like a king in the world. Um, you dominate. But a loving perception is, you know, playful and open and willing to take risks. But I think it comes from a, a fundamental valuing of another person. And to me, like in the classroom where I'm thinking about interactions, that just that simple, elegant, but very profound contrast is helpful to sort of understand good, like that, that there are at least two very different ways of going through the world. And we know when we're one and we know when we're the other because we've had experiences of both. And I think the challenge for people with dominance um, by class, by race, whatever the important social access is in a situation is to, re is to realize, when am I arrogant? Mm -hmm. And what am mm -hmm. I trying to achieve in that arrogance? And what would be a loving way of being in this space? This idea of arrogance versus loving doesn't just apply to interpersonal interactions, though. It also plays out in the media. It is very arrogant, if we talk about Eric Garner, to show his murder over and over and over as mm -hmm. just news, as if we were supposed to not see that there was a murder. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a person of color, that's all you saw. And I don't mm -hmm. know how you could not see that. And then you mm -hmm. gave the, the, mm -hmm. the analog would be mm -hmm. 
the the murder of two newscasters yeah. that out of respect for their family members was never shown mm -hmm. never never shown so what does that tell me what does that tell everyone white lives matter black lives are spectacles that's an arrogant perception of self and reality i didn't even think about that when the when the newscaster uh, murders happened it sparked this huge debate about auto streaming of video on Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, people were yes. scroll people were scrolling through, and everyone was outraged yeah. that this thing was just auto playing in uh -huh. front of them. That kind of stuff was happening with yes. the Eric Gardner thing when people posted video of that, but that didn't spark this no. national outrage. Like, like we've been, you know, so people were like, we've been violated by you foisting this mm -hmm. murder on us. Right. But no one said that about that. No, and it's, they it's, didn't see a murder. What did they, they see? I mean, when you, you had that opening white talk example, uh -huh. how can you be sure? Right, that it was right. How can you not be sure that yeah. this was something that was a, yeah. an atrocity uh -huh. and that had everything to do with race? You heard, and that's the thing with white talk is that it, it doesn't just shut down a conversation. It refuses sort of factual information. Yeah. A man is selling cigarettes and is taken down yeah. for an offense that is not of that yes. magnitude, you know what mm -hmm, I mean? Mm -hmm. um, right, and you can't see race in that. So I mean, this the public spectacle thing is chilling um, because the discourse around, and I remember the journalist's name only because it's Allison Bailey Parker, and I keep getting <laughs> Google oh. alerts. <laughs> so she was protected, the man that was killed with her was protected, and the language around that was, this is a public execution. This is a public execution. But no one said of Trayvon Martin, this is a public execution, or Eric Gardner, this is a public execution, or Tamir Rice, this is a public execution. And I could go on. These were all public executions. And there's the fact that those were aired and reinscribed over and over and over again there's a history behind that. Lynching was a public spectacle. And people made postcards and circulated them. It was entertainment. And so that's chilling. It tells me that we haven't come that far in our, in our visual culture, our cultural representation of black bodies. So part of having an arrogant perception of the world is not seeing things that are right in front of you. Or if you see them, seeing them incorrectly. Um, and there's there's so much talk lately about how the solution or the quick fix to like something like police violence is body cameras. And the thinking there is that if we have visual proof, then maybe we can make sense of it. But the problem is that even when there is photographic proof, right, even when it is smacking us in the face over and over again, we can't see it. Even when there's evidence, we can't see it correctly. So seeing things doesn't help if people refuse to interpret what they see in a loving way. It's a refusal of facts, a refusal to see the facts. So the misperceptions, I think maybe we just said this, are part of white talk. Yeah. Because if you're on the receiving end of that, you're like, that's how you see me mm -hmm. all along. You mm -hmm. just saw me as a thug. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. that you know these other things about me. That's what you go back to. Yep. I think that's why Lugonis' term, it's not arrogant sensation. Not that, you know, it's perception. It's the meaning making. Yes. You know, you have things and you choose to interpret them in a way that is very arrogant. To go back to Lugonis, because I find her work really useful, too, for teaching this thing. There's one piece in the uh, 
this essay on loving playfulness and world traveling, mm-hmm. where she says, you know, I am not interested in assigning blame or responsibility. I'm interested in finding a loving way out of this. And she's talking to women of color and white women about the dialogues across difference in feminist spaces and how we can't come together and what barriers are, even for people that are sort of on board having these talks. But she's like, don't have that conversation. Find it's, Things are tough. We need to find a loving way out of this. There's an immediacy here. Rather than figure out who's at fault. Who's at fault is, well, my ancestors never owned slaves. No, that doesn't do anybody any good. That's all for this bonus episode. Links to the ideas we mentioned in this segment can be found on our show notes page, examiningethics.org. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts so that you never miss an episode. We release shows the last Wednesday of every month. We've got a killer show coming up at the end of September to kick off Season 5. You can also find us on Twitter, at Examining Ethics. We're on Instagram as well, at Examining Ethics Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you the last Wednesday of September. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics. Christian Weishart produced this show with editorial assistance from Eleanor Price. The segment from episode six was co-produced by Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart. Our logo is by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support.